0: Before you uh, open your Bibles, and if you have them, please turn to 2 Timothy. Um, Before you open your Bibles, I just want to say about uh, the conference that's happening on November 5th that was mentioned just a few moments ago. Uh, That book, Redeeming Heartache, uh, has been a very, very powerful book in my own life in recent days. Just this reality that we come from and experience pain and brokenness and that God wants to enter into that brokenness and speak healing. Um, I I have really, really... um, Uh, hopeful high hopes for what God's going to do on the 5th at this church. And so I just want to say, I hope you will make every effort to join us on November 5th. It's going to be a really, really powerful day. Um, I believe the Lord wants to speak into your own life and your own story and bring the good news to those places of pain and brokenness. And the the truth in this book, Redeeming Heartache, it's really powerful. I think we have lots of copies out there. So if you want to grab one or you want to get one on Amazon, um, I would just encourage you to buy the book, read the book, and then prepare your heart for some healing and some transformation. Um, It's going to be good. It's going to be good. So 2 Timothy 2. Uh, Beginning in verse 8, I'm going to read through verse 15, and then we're going to pray, and then we're just going to try to spend some time listening to the words of the Lord, the word of the Holy Spirit through our brother, St. Paul. Uh, He spoke to Timothy, his spiritual son, and I believe the Lord wants to speak to each and every one of us today as we uh, sit and hold high and honor his word spoken and written to us. Paul says, remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead, a descendant of David, That is my gospel for which I suffer hardship even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But the word of God is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect so that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is sure. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless... He remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Remind them of this and warn them before God that they are to avoid wrangling over words which does no good but only ruins those who are listening. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved by him, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly explaining the word of truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we ask you to help us. We ask you to help us to be still for these next few moments together, God, that as we meditate together, as we consider your word, we pray that, Holy Spirit, by your power, you would speak to each and every one of us. We pray that you would open up our hearts and our minds to receive truth that is meaningful, that means something for where we're living right now. God, these words are very, very practical. There are exhortations about how to think and how to live, and we pray, God, that we would receive them as such. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. So for the last few weeks, we have been in uh, 2 Timothy, and as as a pastor, it's just important to say that uh, epistles, which that's what this is, epistle just means letter, so letters in the Bible, uh, they read a little differently and they preach a little differently than maybe gospel or wisdom literature or, or the prophets. And so what you feel in these moments, and what you'll feel probably in the next few moments as we sit together in the Bible, is that this will be kind of like getting into the nitty gritty of your life. This is kind of where Paul is getting down into the life of his spiritual son, Timothy. So we're going to pull some of the, the, the truth out of this text and then just hold it. So this may not be as like, you know, I don't think I ever preach like epic sermons but this definitely won't be one of those because it's getting down in a kind of like, let's think about this. Let's consider this. Let's, let's allow ourselves to be challenged in this way. So what we're going to do for the next few moments is try to to do justice to or to be honest and thoughtful with the text itself, and then to consider the things that we're invited to consider as we read these words. So this may feel a little different than if we're preaching like a sermon on Jesus walking on the water or the feeding of the 5,000. This is going to be kind of like a think about your life in light of what Paul is inviting Timothy to think about. And I believe the Lord's going to speak to us and show up in some ways that are really helpful. The first thing I I think we're invited to think about here is the importance of family. And I put them in inverted commas because Paul, as you're well aware, for the last few weeks we've been saying this, is inviting us to expand our understanding of family. Like, it's so beautiful when you see um, biological families. I love grandparents and um, godparents and um, aunts and uncles and cousins who come up and stand with small children and say, like, we love this kid and we're going to raise this kid and love on this kid so that she or he will one day grow up and be family and follow Jesus. That's amazing. Your family, especially if it's a gift to you, is a treasure. Even in this text, Paul says um, Jesus descended from David. He's like speaking about Jesus's family. He talked last week about his ancestors. He talked last week also about Timothy's ancestors, his mother, his grandmother, Lois and Eunice, who who gave faith to their child. Family is really important. But family has to be expanded. Y'all, we are family. Paul looks at Timothy and calls him a son and they're not blood related. They're family because they're family in the kingdom of God. Y'all, we belong to one another. And one of the themes that I see over and over and over again in the pages of the New Testament is this idea that you are not an independent, free agent. And I think that was important for Timothy to hear. You're not alone. But maybe more Uh, significant is our invitation to hear that in a world where we tend to live fragmented lives, we tend to live independent lives. We live in a country that values rugged independence. And if we're not careful, we will begin to believe the lie, the myth that faith is a private enterprise, that faith is about me and God and nobody else. And I just want to say to you, it's not true. It's not true. We are called to embrace and accept both the gift and the responsibility that comes with being family. And Paul says it over and over and over again. Uh, The imagery of the Bible, we talk about the family of God, is pervasive. And we're going to look at a little bit of that here in a few minutes because you belong to the people sitting next to you. We belong to something bigger than us. And we don't always like this belonging because it means that we bump up against one another. We don't always like one another, but we belong to one another. And I believe that one of the great invitations for us, especially as we move into increasingly post-Christian spaces, is that we're going to need to be more robust in our belief that we belong to one another as the family of God. Your definition of family needs to be enhanced and expanded. You're not alone. I don't think you can do shalom. You can't get to peace and flourishing on your own. I don't think you can podcast your way and read your way in isolation to the good life that God has for you. Those things are fine insofar as they work and speak truth to us, but we need one another. We need one another. Do you know what the problem is in this room? There's a lot right in this room, but the problem is that all your chairs are facing in the same direction. And on Sundays, that makes sense, right? I mean, it would be weird if One day you came in and we had like chairs facing and weird. you know, it's like going into a full elevator and instead of turning and facing the door, just facing everyone. I mean, that would be weird. Um, But here's the problem. Like you can't have family and community with the back of somebody's head. Just doesn't work that way. Church is fine for what it is. It's meant to be a celebration where we come together and we affirm the goodness of the resurrection and we sing and we welcome little babies into our church family. It's amazing. Sundays are so important. But if we don't find ways to both metaphorically and actually turn our chairs and our lives toward other people, we're going to live an impoverished experience of what it means to be the family of God. Sunday's good, but Sunday's not enough, y'all. You gotta be known, we gotta belong to one another. And in many respects, in every respect, that means pushing through all the reasons for not doing that. Will they annoy me? Will my calendar's busy? I live far. We live in a bit. All the things I just want to say to you, your family, and you got to put your money where your mouth is if you want to live that supported, flourishing life that God wants and has for you. So I just want to say this. If you're not in community, we want to help you find it. If you're not in a relationship that is meaningful, we want to help you find those things. Addie Norman, who is our groups and hospitality pastor at this church, um, we will help you find your way into neighborhood group. If you miss the window of joining community where you sit and you talk and you eat and you share life together, um, email Addie and we will do our very best to get you plugged into neighborhood. We want you to find community. I believe that it's so, so important. As we move increasingly into post-Christian context, our world is barreling down toward post-Christendom where people have unhooked the notion of church and community, a spiritual family, is going to become of vital importance to us. I don't think you can do this apart from relationship, apart from meaningful relationship. The second thing that Paul says to Timothy is the word of God is not chained. And I love this image because Paul's actually writing from jail. He's actually writing from prison where he has been in prison. Uh, by Rome for proclaiming the gospel Um, he's offended Jews he's offended Romans and he's now in jail and he writes his son Timothy and he's basically saying to Timothy I wish I could get to you and put my hands on you and hug you as my spiritual son but I can't and then he says but God is not hindered I think if we back up from what Paul is saying in the particular and hold the truth of that, but then back up and say what might be generally true about what's happening with Paul in jail and then Paul speaking to Timothy, what Paul is basically saying here is I am hindered, I am limited, but God is not hindered, God is not limited. So what does it look like for us to go, I'm hindered? There are limitations in my own life. There are things that I can't do that I wish I could do, but God is not hindered and limited. There's something that Paul is saying here that I think we really, really need to hold and we need to wrestle with. He's saying essentially God is not bothered by or limited by our own vulnerability, our own fragility, our own circumstances. He's able to do things that we ourselves cannot do. I think if you pull it into other biblical imagery, I think of the disciples when they were rowing in the boat and there was a, um, I think the King James Version says there was an adversarial wind blowing against them. And what does Jesus do? He comes walking to them out on the water. Jesus is transcending on top of the very thing that is overwhelming and swamping them. So I want you to think about this and this idea of the word of God is not hindered. God is able to overcome that which overwhelms you. And me. So we're then free to admit our own limitations, our own overwhelmedness, because that overwhelmedness does not pull God into the undertow. I think that sometimes we get confused. We think that God is sort of rises and falls based on our own moods and our own circumstances and our own struggles. And I just want to say to you, you're hindered. God is not hindered. God is seated in glory and on the throne, and He has something to say to your life and mine and to the world. He is not hindered. And so, as Paul admits his own vulnerability, he says to Timothy, and I think he's saying to himself, we all need to remind ourselves sometimes. Like when I'm reminding you, I'm actually also reminding me. When I'm telling you, like, God is not bound by your own limitations, God is bigger than those things, I'm actually also saying that to myself. I think Paul's doing the same. He's like, I'm encouraging Timothy, and I'm also encouraging myself because he had to get up, he was in jail. Things were not where he wanted them to be. And he was like, but God's still God. And I just want to say to you that if you are in spaces and we all are where things are not as we wish they would be, God is not hindered. He's still God. We may be hindered. He is not hindered. He is able to overcome that which overwhelms you. The third thing that Paul says is enduring, he endures for the sake of the elect. I love this too. Um, So I'm learning um, in this season, I think I, I... I don't know if you're into the Enneagram, it's it weird. My kids are all young adults and it's like, there's like an over under on like how many minutes are gonna go by when grownups are talking before the Enneagram comes up. Um, so it's like a game for my kids. So I have spent a lot of years um, really thinking that I was a challenger on, on the Enneagram. And I, I think I've come to realize that I'm probably more of an enthusiast. Uh, so I'm a seven, not an eight. And so I, everything I'm saying right now, like, I go, I love this the most. It's because, like, I'm talking about this now. So I love what I'm, what I'm about to see in the text the most right now. And a few minutes ago, it was that other thing. And in a minute, it's going to be something else. So I love this the most. Paul sees his own suffering, which is for the gospel. He's not suffering because he's been, like, a bad guy. If you're suffering because you've been a bad guy, you're not doing that for the sake of the elect. Like you're doing that because you've been like a little sketchy. And God will forgive you, but don't convince yourself that like you're suffering. Like if you're wretched, he loves you and will forgive you. But that's not for the sake of the elect. Like you, you just need to repent. Paul in this case is suffering because he's suffering injustice. And he sees that his suffering is not just for him. It's not just about him. It's not just even about God, but he says, what I'm experiencing is for y'all, for the family of God. This gets back to this family idea. Paul sees that his own circumstances are not just about him, that he is living for the sake of others, that his life and your life, that our life together is intertwined in a way that we don't always understand, but is fundamentally true. You are not a free agent. You are not an isolated and independent person. I would say that when we belong to the family of God, our virtue affects other people and our vice affects other people. There's no such thing as a victimless crime in the family of God. There's also no such thing as virtue that doesn't spill out and touch other people because you're mystically connected to one another as the body of Christ. There are two other images that that the Lord uses in the New Testament to affirm this idea of integration a body, and a house. Those are two other images used in the Bible to describe us, the Christian church. And if you don't think your body is an integrated whole, let's go outside after church and I will drop a brick on your big toe. Your whole body is going to respond to something happening to one little part of yourself because you're an integrated whole. That's why the Bible says rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who weep because we're connected to one another. You pull a load-bearing wall out of your house, the whole thing's going to become unstable because we belong to one another. So what that means is you matter. What that means is you're connected to the person sitting next to you. What that means is we're invited to explore our connection in more intentional ways so that we actually can steward that connection. Paul sees his own circumstances and he says, I am suffering for the sake of the elect. Now I'm going to say something that may sound controversial to some of you. Um, I believe deeply in outreach. I, I love that should not be controversial. Just to be clear, I think we're supposed to be people who serve, who do justice, who do evangelism. But Paul here places a a sense of primacy upon your responsibility—not just to the world, but your responsibility to the body of Christ and the family of God. We owe one another something because we're family. And sometimes we'd rather go out there because there's less relational like accountability. We can just do good, feel good. What about the person that you're struggling with right here? The family of God, actually, there is a high calling. And I I will say it until I turn purple in my face. As we move further into post-Christendom, our integration together as the family of God is going to become more and more important and less and less just a convenience, It needs to be more than just the occasional, I sit, I look at the back of somebody's head. It's more than that because we actually affect one another. It's really important. And I think it actually cuts across an American myth. It's an an American lie that you're just a rugged individual, not according to God. You're not a rugged individual. You're you're a part of something, and you matter, and they matter, and we matter together. So relationships is so important. Okay, my next favorite part of this text. Paul gives us an if-slash-will-also scenario. I love if-will-also's. They are wonderful. So for me, here's an example. So I remember running the Monday night 10-mile with the Monday night um, brewing. They run a 10-mile race and a 10K. And I remember the whole time when I got on the back end of that run, I thought, if I finish, I will also have beer at the end. So I want you to think, regardless of how you feel about what I just said, I just want you to think there was an if-will also in my mind. I thought, if I finish, I will also have Monday night beer with people I love sitting by fire. So that's what Paul— Paul's not talking about beer right now, I am. What he's saying here is I'm going to give you an if-will-also scenario or two or three to orient you as you are in the middle of whatever the struggle is that you're not sure you're going to make it through. So let's let Paul say it again. If-will-also. He says, The saying is sure. And that's really important because when he says the saying is sure, what he's inviting you into is belief. And belief is actually the first step toward possessing hope. So he's saying, I want you to believe this and I want you to hope. And then this is what he says. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Then he says the converse. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. He's inviting you to believe. And maybe today you need to believe some of what here is written because you're in the middle of a disorienting space. You know, when the disciples are rowing and Jesus is walking, that thing I referenced a few minutes ago, you know they don't recognize him at first? It's not because Jesus looked weird. It's because I think they were in the middle of a crisis and they had developed tunnel vision, which is what happens to all of us in a crisis. They're just rowing. And Jesus is coming, and they don't spot him. So there are times where we're invited to step back and say, I need to believe that there are some if-will-alsos at play to orient me in the middle of the darkness. So I want us to slow down for a minute, and I want us to hear these words again. And what I want to challenge you to do in the next moment or so is to ask what stands out to me, what feels important to me. And you don't even fully have to understand what, why. I think sometimes holding something and receiving something is like, this means something, is actually a step toward understanding what the Lord wants to say to you. So I'm going to read the text again, this portion. The saying is sure. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, He will deny us if we are faithless he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself paul is reminding us he's orienting us of a number of true things number one life lives on the other side of death if we don't avoid it and check out resurrection is what happens when we don't avoid death. It's what happened when Jesus did not work around death. He went into death and through it. Also settled power and influence resides on the other side of endurance. And I know that we live in a world that is increasingly uncomfortable with notions of power where um, there's a sense out there in the world and maybe even in some of us that we need to deconstruct all power, that all power is inherently bad. I just wanna say that's not true. Power, influence is a gift from God. The word used here is reign with him. You are destined to reign with God, to possess spiritual authority in the world to come. But I believe that we're also invited to possess a kind of spiritual moral authority in the world that is as we live with God, as we endure with God. That's how Paul was able to say, follow me, imitate me as I imitate Jesus. Paul was saying, I have, I have moral authority, I have spiritual authority. Don't be afraid of influence and power. Wield it wisely. Wield it with humility. Don't don't be um, an abuser of power, but, but don't shirk influence. Every one of us in this room has been gifted with remarkable influence and the potential for impact in the world around us. Don't pretend as if it's not true and don't throw it away. Just see it be redeemed. We need more than ever, I think, people who will redeem notions of power rather than throwing them out. The converse is also at play here. Paul says, if we deny him, he will also deny us. And I just want to say this before you freak out and check out, fidelity means a great deal to the Lord. Fidelity matters, faithfulness matters. The notion of denying God in this context has very little to do with having a bad day or going through a season of doubt. I would say it has nothing to do with that. If you're doubting, you're not denying God. You're trying to voice some stuff that you're not sure about. You're maybe expressing confusion. That's not what's happening here. Some of us have grown up with a vision of faith that says, you know, fake it till you make it. Act like you've got all the answers because if you ever admit that you're not sure, that means you're probably cutting bait on God. That's not what Paul is saying here. I believe that what Paul is exhorting Timothy toward is to refuse to reject the authority of God and assume the role of responsibility for your life and the world around you all on your own. I think what he's saying is refuse an I've got it mindset. Remember last week... um, I was talking about faith and I said, so faith is to place the weight of your life upon it. So like you're sitting in a chair right now, you've, you've expressed faith when you sat down that the chair would hold you up. That, that's actually faith, to place your weight upon. And I said last week, like a lot of us are kind of like one cheek faith people, you know, we got one foot on the ground and one foot on the, on the Lord and we're just sort of like a backup plan in case it doesn't work out. Denying God is just a no cheek faith. It's just like, I'm going to have to do this. I'm standing right here and I got to do it. And so if you're worried about whether you've denied God, I just want to say you're probably in really good shape. (laughs) Because when you've really got into an I've got this, you're not asking that question anymore. So I just want to speak peace to you. But what I do believe is that the Lord is asking us to reject an I've got it mindset. And some of us, that's born out of like arrogance and others of us have just been so disappointed that we've thought, well, nobody else has it. So I guess I have to. And I just want to say to you, the Lord wants you to place the weight of your life upon him and he wants you to practice what that feels like and admit how scary that is. I will say this as well. I believe that failure is one of the greatest gifts that comes to us in this arena because failure at its best, most redemptive, can liberate us from an I've got it mindset. Like in a very real way, um, I failed as the leader of this church. It, I, I, I hit a wall, I burned out, and I disappeared for four months. And much of the time during that four months, I wasn't sure if I was going to make it. I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to come back and be a pastor. I I, I was I felt that I failed and it's one thing to fail like privately, right? Like if you decide like I'm going to go try to run a 6-minute mile and then you try to run a 6-minute mile and it's a 7-minute mile and you're like, "Oh, I failed." You know, it's another thing to do it in front of a thousand of your closest friends. And to fail staff where I was just just checked out and afraid and like in a place of self-preservation. I didn't know it. I mean, like, you know, fish don't know they're wet. You probably sense when you're in a bad spot, but you don't really know. And I will tell you that failure for me has been one of the greatest gifts of my life because it's liberated me from any kind of broken shadow illusion that would reinforce. Now, the practical working out is harder than this, but the notion of I've got it or I'm on my own or I've got to be responsible for the world and for all of y'all and for, it's like I'm realizing right now, like, we don't have it. So if you're experiencing some form of failure, I believe that that can be one of the greatest gifts of your life. If you will admit it and embrace your finitude and then begin to move forward. Last thing, don't split hairs and don't play games with words. I'm going to define the word wrangling to you because, you know, maybe you need to know. To wrangle, and Paul says, do not wrangle with words. To wrangle is to engage in a dispute or argument, typically one that is long and complicated. So here's what I want to say at the end. If any of this you find in your head, yourself wrangling with words to like say, well, I've been hurt by the church. You know what? I've been hurt by the church. If you're like, I can't do family because this is, I've been hurt. If you found yourself trying to talk yourself out of any of this, which is not my stuff, this is like just Paul talking to Timothy and us trying to hear them, then I would say, be careful, step back and realize, okay, I'm experiencing some resistance here. When we try to split hairs to avoid, we're usually missing something for ourselves and it's sometimes confusing for other people. So what Paul is saying at the end here is just beware of your strategies for avoidance. Beware of the places where you want to make complicated arguments to avoid certain things. It's not just about becoming like cult leaders. I mean, there were people that were doing that, that were like getting complicated and weird and being cultish. But maybe for you, it's not that. Maybe for you, it's like, do I split hairs and engage in technical arguments in order to be right or to win arguments or to let myself off the hook? I do that. I bet you do too. Paul is saying that's something we should endeavor to stop doing. Because when we're stuck in this thinking, we remain stuck and we confuse other people. And it's not good for the family. Here's the question I want to invite you to hold here for a few moments. Go ahead and put it up there. This one felt really important to me because it feels important actually on a personal level to me, but also I think for us, because I think it's one of the harder things coming out of two years of isolation and division and conflict. How does the notion of belonging to others sit with you? What, what emotion or feeling does this idea of spiritual family elicit in you? And I think what I would like us to do is for a couple of minutes to bring those feelings, good and bad, to God. Just to name, like, I feel hopeful or I feel afraid. And you won't solve it right now but i think what you can do is start a reflection that'll be a pretty honest one so we're going to spend two minutes in silence and then we're going to come together and prepare for communion but first let's just consider these questions for about about two minutes together If we're able to do so, let's stand together.